Okay, let's take a look at our scripture that can be found on the inside of the bulletin on page four, I believe. You can see in Romans 8, page 31, 34. Very timely passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The word of the Lord. It was this past Friday in Seattle when the unthinkable happened. A baggage agent, a ground baggage agent named Richard Russell working for Horizon Airlines in Seattle somehow managed, although not being a pilot or having a pilot's license, to commandeer a twin turboprop 76 passenger plane and took off in Seattle on apparently what was a suicide mission. No one knew exactly what was going on in Richard's head. By all accounts, looking at his social media, he was a very happily engaged, excuse me, happily married person, married for seven years, living a normal life. He had traveled, he had friends, and yet what emerged over the cockpit communication showed something different. As Richard said over the intercom, I'm bound to disappoint people and I'm terribly sorry. I guess I'm just a broken guy with a couple of screws loose here and there. He proceeded to perform a couple of very dangerous acrobatic maneuvers and then plowed his plane into an island about 40 miles from Seattle, killing only himself. And we're left with questions about the life of this man, Richard Russell. What caused him to do such a thing? On the outside, he looked so normal, and yet in the inside, there was pain. There was resignation. What voices of condemnation were flowing through his head that caused him to think that life is not worth living? We have to ask ourselves the own, our own questions. We're familiar with those voices of condemnation, maybe not to that degree. But it's hard to get through this life, isn't it, without experiencing condemnation from the world for what we're not. Condemnation from ourselves as we look in the mirror, wondering if life really is worth living, whether there really is somebody who is for us, whether we are worthy of affirmation. That's why I'm so thankful for this passage. Because for the Christian, this is the bedrock upon which we stand. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or anything, can it stand against the one that God favors? The reality and the truth is if God is for us, none can stand against us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. 
And so it is in these times of trial, these times of sadness, that we look to the bedrock reality of the cross and the promises of God. That because God is for us, none can stand against us. But what this passage shows us is that we must respond. For it does start with a question, does it not? What shall we say to these things? How shall we respond to our circumstances? How shall we respond to the voice of condemnation, even the voice of death itself? So the three things that I want to look at this passage. Number one, the promise that God gives us, that gives us the strength to stand against the darkness. Number two, the evidence that God provides so that we can be sure that these are not simply empty promises, but rather stand behind the bedrock reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And finally, the assurance that we have that God's grace will never run out, that it will continue to the end, irregardless of ourselves and our failings and our faithlessness, for God is faithful. So let us begin with number one, the promise. And what is this promise? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we have to ask the question, what are these things that God is Refer, that Paul is referring to in the passage. Paul, in essence, this verse is summing up all the things that he has been talking about, the promises and the realities of what God has done, that God foreknew us in love, that God has predestined us to sonship, that God has called us from death to life, that God has declared us righteous, that God is working in us from one degree of glory to another until the day Christ returns. And so Paul is summing up all of these points with this one sentence. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is, in essence, calling the question, what are we to say in response to all of this? You know, Christianity is quite simple when you boil it down to its essence. It really comes down to one question. Do you trust me? God asking us, do you trust me that I've got this? Irregardless of what the circumstances look like, irregardless of what you see or think or feel, do you trust me? That because I am for you, none can stand against you. Sooner or later, life will call the question for you. When your Christianity, which may be more theoretical, has to be called into actuality. Such is a time for the Dodo family right now. As they go through the loss of Darla. As they wonder, will we ever see her again? Is all of life futile? We're born, we're die, that's it. Life is calling the question for Ken and the kids, do you trust me? I remember God calling the question with our family four years ago when our oldest son was killed. It's easy to get up here and preach the truth and the good news, but at some time we have to stand upon it. See, the truth of the matter is we live with the illusion that we are in charge of life. Because we are for us, nothing can stand against us. But the older you get, the more you realize that there are so many things in life that we are not in control of. 
That life is but a vapor and a whisper. And in a moment, it can be gone. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Think of so many things that have been against Darla. The cancer that appeared in her body 11 months ago, 11 years ago. See, the thing about cancer that is so insidious is what cancer does is it causes your body to begin to fight itself. To think that your body is the alien agent that needs to be expelled. Darla's body has been against her for all of these years as they have fought to stave off death. And we have prayed and been with them and cared for them as a good family all of those years. Ultimately, death is against us. All of us are terminal, right? It's just a question of when. But God says that nothing can stand against us. And nothing means nothing, including death, can stand against us. God has promised in Jeremiah 29, 11, among many, many verses, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. People, I remember asking us in one way or shape or another after the death of our son, how can you still believe in the goodness of God after such a horrible, seemingly senseless thing happened to your family? And now he's gone. The only answer I can give is it's not over yet. God is the resurrection and the life. Of the 20 billion people who have walked the face of this earth, he is the only one to die. And three days later to rise from the dead, the, the, the dead. Not resuscitated, but resurrected. Nothing is too great for God. And because of this, because God is for us, we need not fear. Verse 33 puts it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect because it's God who has the final say. You know what Satan translates to in English? It's accuser. The word Satan, to accuse. Satan is the accuser who accuses us before God. But the scriptures show us and tell us that he has been thrown down, for there is now one who justifies, whose voice is louder than even the most powerful enemy that we have. Yes, the devil brings charge against God, but it shall not stick. <laughs> who of us has not experienced when a friend or an enemy has brought a charge against us for our flaws, maybe some of them true? How about the charges of the world that say you're not smart enough? You're not pretty enough. You're not accomplished enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not connected enough. Who hasn't felt the sting of that charge? And yet it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, only one opinion counts in the end. And it's the opinion of God himself. See, what this promise gives us is freedom from fear. Most of the world chooses its lifestyle because it fears sickness and theft and terror and a loss of a job and a dozen other things. But to the follower of Jesus, the Lord says, the Gentiles seek all of these things. But you seek the kingdom first 
God will give us what we need. And what we lose or lack as we minister for God's kingdom with love and sacrifice and suffering will ultimately work for our good and come back to us in some God-designed way a hundredfold. We are, my wife is a therapist. Thank goodness the, the bills would be catastrophic otherwise. But she's introduced me to the Enneagram. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the Enneagram. It's kind of like a personality type test. I think I'm a Libra with a Capricorn rising or something like that. Does anybody study the horoscope? That was actually pretty good humor. Um, okay. Is this one? I'm apparently a five in the Enneagram, but you already knew that, didn't you? And apparently my biggest issue is a fear of being overwhelmed by life. And so I protect myself. I'm very careful not to give too much of myself away to other people for fear that there isn't enough. And at the greatest danger, I can insulate myself so much from life that I don't even feel life whatsoever. And I miss out on people and relationships and they miss out on me. You know, that could be a pretty good representation of fallen Carlos. But the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of this promise is that I have the freedom to give myself away, even to death if necessary. Because somebody, the God of the universe, is watching over me. He protects me. He loves me. He gives me a hope and a future that I need not fear whatever is to happen, whether the rejection of people or the failure in my pursuits or even death itself. My life is safe in his arms and I'm able to give my life away. I think of Darla's beautiful life and her smile. So many of us who were touched by her life as she gave herself away. So many of us don't recognize or realize the pain that she was in all the time from the cancer eating away at her body. And yet she had such a beautiful spirit about her and a willingness to smile and love and care for others who came into her orbit. How is that possible? I think it's the promise that sustains her sustain her and sustains us all. If God is for us, we can do that. There is no greater promise for anyone, for her or for us. So my question for you is this. Have you called the question? What shall we say in response to these things? Have you planted your flag on the faithfulness and the promise of God? If so, you must understand that none of your circumstances, none of our sicknesses is a judgment from a condemning judge. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is a punishment from God. None of our marital strife is a sign of his wrath. None of our lost jobs a penalty for sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of the whip of God's retribution. For if God is for us, who can be against us? He's working in all things for good, for those who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. So what shall I say in response to these things? This leads me to my second point, the evidence. Verse 32 puts it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think one of the most challenging things in a situation like this is when we reach out to the dodals and we want to tell them we're with them, we want to do something. You know, there's different degrees of telling someone that you're with them, right? You ever had someone come up to you, hey, I'm with you, man. And they're with us in spirit, if you will. But they're not really with us. They're just with us from the standpoint of they care. Who was it that said the amount, of the, the degree that you're willing to be inconvenienced for someone is the amount that you love them? Well, we see the ultimate degree of inconvenience in this verse, don't we? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he's speaking to the body of Christ, to believers. Think about that, his own son. Jesus is the ever-existent, co-eternal, non-created, divine image of the Father in whom all the fullness of God lives. The one who he spoke from heaven during his baptism and said, this is my son whom I love, who I'm well pleased with. The ultimate name that God wants to be called is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father can only be called God the Father because there's a God the Son. The Son is as much a part of who he is as the Holy Spirit. And yet it says that he did not spare his only Son. Rather, he delivered him up to be lied about and betrayed and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal being butchered. Would he really do that? Would he really hand over the son of his love for me? He who did not spare his son but gave him up. A lot of people tell me that my oldest son Mark looked a lot like me and acted a lot like me. I could never give up my son for anyone on purpose, or any of my children for that matter. And yet it says that he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. For you, and you, and you, all of us who love him. It's a pretty easy argument, right? Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. If, if God did this for you, how will he not also graciously, not reluctantly, graciously give us all things? Not like a celestial candy machine where we hit the spiritual jackpot, but like a loving father. Indeed, the scriptures say, that as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The same degree of love that God has for Jesus is the same degree of love that God has for us. 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Notice that and don't miss that. God not only gives us graciously all things, but he gives us the most important thing, him himself, Jesus Christ. We already have his son. I guess the question is, what else do we need? Maybe a little bread and water, right? We already have everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have love. It's the most precious resource on the face of the earth. You can have everything if you don't have love. Somehow Richard Russell didn't have love in his heart, and it cost his death. Darla passed away, but she had love in her heart. And the one person we don't have to mourn for in this whole situation is Darla. Part of the praise and worship band that she used to enjoy singing in so much here before she got sick. What does this mean, this assurance for you and me? It means that God is involved in everything in my life. The one who graciously gives us all things is carefully watching the ultimate helicopter parent caring for every facet of our life. I don't have to wonder what he thinks of me. I don't have to produce before a stern, unstable parent. I don't have to perform lest I produce a frown on his face. Instead, I can give thanks in all circumstances, even in death, for God is working out my salvation. And his grace and his love never runs out. There was a note that was taken from a soldier from the Civil War back in Gettysburg on the battlefield, one who passed away. And this note in this fallen soldier's coat said this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve, and I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy, and I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men, and I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but got everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. I think if we could talk to Darla Dodo on the other side of the pale, and ask her the question, if you could do it all over again, would you take anything of the back? Any ounce of the pain? Any part of your body? Any circumstance that you found yourself in this body? I think Darla, now that she knows everything, would say no. But God was with me, and he was shaking me. He used it to bring me to himself. And it was all 
I think Darla would say, I am among all people as Christian brothers. We may not be in those dire straits, though many of us mourn quite painfully for the loss of our dear friend, whose eyes we will not look upon again on this side of glory. But it's in these situations that we need not look simply to the promise, but we look to the evidence. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all? And so we look to the cross, we look to the blood, we look to the nails and we look to the thorns. When we are in the depths, we look to the greater when we're in the lesser. And we too, by God's grace, can give thanks in whatever circumstance befalls us, whether in rejoicing in grief, in plenty or in life. This brings me to my final point, the assurance. Does God's grace ever run out? Is there ever a time when that it is proclaimed from the halls of heaven? We finish with verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, is at the right hand of the Father. If God has so honored him, he will honor the work that he did for you and me at the cross. In our system of government, there is a system of courts that finishes with the final court of appeals, right? The Supreme Court. Whatever the Supreme Court decides, that's it. There's no other place to go. And in the same way, there is the highest court, the throne room of God. And if God is the one who acquits you, declares you righteous in his sight, no one can appeal. No one can claim a mistrial or call for a technicality. No one can look to other courts for you. God's sentence is final and total. The voice of condemnation cannot stand against Christ's voice of affirmation. We hear plenty of voices of condemnation in this world. I think the worst voices I hear are those in my own head. For some reason, that voice, which is not always my own, seeks to tear me down. But no one would stand for me. But if I listen with ears of faith, if I strain my neck to the heavenly walls of God, there is another voice that speaks even louder, that cannot be drowned out, that never stops, that never walks away. In the gospel, I have found the beautiful, glorious, I can sleep now at night freedom that comes from knowing that my righteousness is settled. I'm free to examine any criticism, confess any sin, and love the one who criticizes me. 
I don't have to fear condemnation or shame, and I don't have to hold on so tightly to my private reputation. Because there is an assurance I have. Jesus Christ, the one who is dead and is now alive, is interceding for me. In the throne room of heaven. One who stands for me when everyone else falls away. Darla is hearing that voice loud and clear. Well done, Darla. Come and share in your father's happiness. We must see these things for now dimly as looking through a dark glass. But as we go through our own times through the battle of the shadow of death, God gives us the promise. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? We carry the evidence. He did not spare his own son and gave him up to us all. How are we not also along with the gracious to give us all And the assurance that there is one waiting for us on that other side of heaven. Jesus Christ, who has begun a good work in us and will surely be faithful to So listen in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening. Listen for the true voice that says, This child is mine. And I affirm him for her. I am a good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they will follow me. And I will lead them to good pasture, for they will want none. God has done this for our beloved sister, brother. God will do this for their family as they mourn. And we mourn along with them. And if you too call upon the name of Jesus Christ and love him, God will most assuredly do this for you as well. This is our hope. This is where we make our stand. This is what we say in this Let's pray. Although without this promise, who could stand? When we are tempted to despair, Father, when the voices of the world ring a little bit too loudly, help us to remember the promise. If you're for us, that you're trustworthy, and that none can stand against you. Help us to embrace the cross like Jesus did. Not in the same way of dying for our sins, for that has been taken care of. But rather let us embrace the one who bled and died, that we would never have to believe in God for our punishment. But his rest and assurance that our Father, and Jesus Christ will never give. Pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen.